Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher, Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. This conversation is about the second book of Chronicles. And one thing I remember from the conversation about the first book of Chronicles is that it was a version of history from a particular perspective, Mike. Is is that the case with the second book? Yes, absolutely, because this book really follows on. This was originally one book, as we've seen with 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. And so it really follows on. And the version of history it gives, and remember we said in a previous episode, by version we don't mean therefore slanted, skewed, untruthful, but told for a particular reason. And just as with 1 Chronicles, whereas 1 and 2 Kings had been The history had been told to explain to Israel how they had ended up in exile. How did we end up here? Because we were disobedient. One and two Chronicles is written to answer the question to the people who returned to Israel after the exile to answer the question, is God still with us now we are here? So it is a version of the history that focuses on why the answer to that question is Yes. And bits that don't help answer that question are omitted. Bits that do help are included or are heightened. And of course, one of the big things that is omitted from two chronicles that is there in two kings is that the history of the northern nation is completely omitted here in this book. Why? because quite simply, it doesn't exist anymore. It had been conquered in 722, 721 BC by Assyria, scattered across the empire, never to come back again. So when the chronicler tells his history, he doesn't even bother with that nation because it's not there anymore. It doesn't exist anymore. Anything that God is going to do now, he is going to do through the descendants of David, through Judah, through the true people of God. What kind of period of time is it covering? Well, we are covering from the period where Solomon becomes the king in the late 10th century BC, right through to the exile of Judah in 586 BC, And then it taking us just in the last few verses of the book that no doubt we'll come to later to Israel's return from that exile after its period of 70 years in exile that Jeremiah had prophesied. So Solomon is on the throne and Solomon is, amongst other things, associated with the temple, building of the temple. His uh, father, David, wasn't allowed to build the temple, but Solomon has built the temple. What kind of temple did he build? Oh, magnificent, I think, would be the easiest word to use. So the whole of the introductory chapters in 2 Chronicles is really about Solomon having become king, having asked God for wisdom, then starts to prepare for and to construct the temple. And it is uh, an amazing temple Indeed, it took seven years to construct, which was, you know, a long time in those days. Uh, One of the first things he does is to send to Hiram, the king of Tyre, a people who were well known for their building abilities, and ask Hiram to send him a man whose 
skilled to work in all the bronze and silver and stuff that they are going to use. And uh, so he sends skilled craftsmen to do this. But of course, with them, they bring also their way of doing things, their way of constructing things. So we get many Phoenician features in the temple as well. So it actually follows the the pattern of Phoenician alias Canaanite temples, which is somewhat ironic, yes. isn't it? Having heard how much they've been told not to follow the ways of the Canaanites. So it's built very much on a Canaanite model with outer courts, with entrances, with a an inner sanctuary, and then a sanctuary right at the back, the Holy of Holies, replicating what was in the tabernacle that had been used in the wilderness that was the Holy of Holies. And just to give you a, a, a sense of scale, and, you know, this may not sound huge for us today, but in days when families lived in single-storey, one-roomed homes, the temple itself measured... Now, I'm never sure whether to talk in feet or metres these days for people, but... <laughs> The temple measured about 27 by 9 metres on its floor plan and was sort of 13 to 14 metres high and it stood on a raised plinth. And only the priests, of course, could enter the temple itself. The people had to simply gather in the courtyard that was built around it. And it had an entrance porch and a holy place that was lined with carved cedar panels containing lampstands and a, a golden incense altar and a table for the holy bread. And then that most holy place, the Holy of Holies, as it's sometimes called, whose walls were covered now not with cedar, but with pure gold. No expense spared. No expense spared. And there into that sanctuary was put the Ark of the Covenant, that gold-covered box with the two cherubim on top whose wings touched one another, symbolising the very presence of God in the midst of his people. And so this is thanks to Solomon and presumably a whole lot of workers that created it. Solomon didn't build it himself, obviously. Not at all. And those workers, as we noted when we looked at the story in 1 Kings, actually came from among the people and they were conscripted labour, which we might also call slaves. If you have to do work that you are forced to do for which you are not paid, it really is nothing other than slavery. And slavery, of course, is what God had freed his people from in Egypt all those centuries before. And here is now Solomon, I think somewhat unthinkingly at first, calling upon people to do the work of building the temple. But the burden becomes greater and greater because not only are they doing the work, they're digging their hands in their pockets to pay for some of this as well and, and to pay for it through taxes. So it will produce resentments in due course. After seven years of construction, it's completed. Was there a topping out ceremony? Oh, absolutely. There was a great ceremony where Solomon dedicates the temple to the Lord. And we can read of that in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. That's a prayer well worth reading through and has some beautiful things about how God has created the whole of creation. And will God really dwell on earth with men here in this temple that I have built? So Solomon leads in prayer and then in 2 Chronicles 7, 
as he finishes the prayer, in fact, why, why don't I read to you just from those first few verses of 2 Chronicles 7, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and burnt up the burnt offerings and sacrifices and the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple and the priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glorious presence of the Lord filled it. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire coming down and the glorious presence of the Lord filling the temple, they fell down on the ground and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, He is good. His faithful love endures forever. So here is now God coming to take up residence at this home on earth. This is, as it were, now seen as the point of connection between heaven and earth. God comes to take up residence above the Ark of the Covenant, and that's symbolized through fire coming from heaven. My goodness. Can, again, we've said often, put yourself into these stories and try and imagine what must that have felt like? What awe and fear must it have brought uh, upon the people? And then this sense of just the glory of the Lord filling the temple. What, what did that look like? What was it like? I don't know, but it was overwhelming. And so they simply fall down on their faces and all they can do is sing this refrain that he is good, his faithful love endures forever. So it, is an it was certainly the best meeting they'd ever been to. That's one thing for sure. And God's response? Well, God's response is to come and say that he has heard Solomon's prayer. In fact, again, it might just be good to read a few verses here from 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 12. It says, Then one night the Lord appeared to Solomon and said, I've heard your prayer. And I've chosen this temple as the place for making sacrifices. At times I might shut up the heavens so that no rain falls or command grasshoppers to devour your crops or send plagues among you. Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. My eyes will be open and my ears attentive to every prayer made in this place. So God responds with a promise to Solomon that if things go wrong in life, as they do at times, if drought comes or the, the grasshoppers come and devour the crops, God says, if my people at that point will turn to me and pray and seek me with all their heart, then I will come and hear and answer and bless them. And he'll go on to say, as for you, if you faithfully follow me, Solomon, as your father David did, obeying my commands, decrees and regulations, then I'll establish the throne of your dynasty forever. So there's the secret. It's not just a quick prayer to God. Oh, God, please come and bless the nation. It's God come and bless the nation because we are setting our hearts to follow your commands, decrees and regulations. You refer to the chronicler, the person who's recorded these things. And I'm trying to imagine who was reporting, as it were, 
on what God was saying. Those are God's words to Solomon and his people. Yes. Now, traditionally, in both Jewish tradition and in Christian tradition, that chronicler that you spoke about is Ezra, who has a book named after him. But obviously Ezra wasn't around for all of this. And so we know that he drew on other historical documents, some of which are actually referred to within the text itself. And obviously there were court records kept, royal records that were kept in the archives. And it looks as if the chronicler, probably Ezra, drew upon all of these. And of course, on one and two kings, the best source material that he has. But they in turn drew upon these royal resources And so things like these prayers must have been things that Solomon either wrote himself or had written by his scribes. And that's why we've got a window into what happened. Now, this second book of Chronicles focuses on the life of Solomon. Solomon's also associated with the visit of the Queen of Sheba. What's going on there? Well, one of the things that Solomon did, and we mentioned this when we were looking at the book of Kings, was that he developed his nation incredibly. Under his rule, Israel became the greatest, the most powerful, the biggest it had ever been. And some of that was actually based on the development of trade. He began to develop trade routes. They became a bit of an import-export nation in, in many ways. And one of the big places for doing trade was down on the Red Sea, he actually set up Ezion-Geba as a port with a fleet of trading ships that went as far as India and brought exotic animals and exotic products back. Now, to get back to your question, where does Sheba fit in? Well, Sheba was also a trading nation that was based in southwest Arabia And it too imported exotic goods from India and actually from Africa. We tend not to think of that part of the world, but they were exporting all sorts of exotic things from India and Africa. And Sheba would import them from there and then send them on via the trade routes, the caravan routes, the camels and so on, uh, through Israel up to Damascus in the north in Syria from where they would be used there, but also sent to many parts of the world. So Sheba had had a bit of a monopoly of the trading routes. And suddenly here is this, frankly, upstart nation, because that's all it had been. I mean, even under David, it was good and godly, but really quite small. Solomon has now developed that. He's developing his trade routes. And suddenly Sheba is feeling very threatened uh, and they want to pow out. And so we get this story in 2 Chronicles 9 of the visit of the Queen of Sheba. And the text tells us that she came because she'd heard of his wisdom and his wealth. She came to test him with heart questions, to be able to flatter him and to say, oh, what a wonderfully wise king you are. But probably underlying it and probably underlying the many gifts that she lavished upon him is that really she was getting a bit threatened about her trading capabilities and wanted to make sure, well, she wanted to check him out, first of all, and to make sure that she didn't lose her hold on these trading routes. So the thought of 
a fleet down at Eziongiba, right at the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula with access to the Red Sea and then the sea routes to India and Africa would definitely have alarmed her. And so uh, while she's full of flattery, there was probably a purpose behind her visit as well. And perhaps worth remembering for us, you know, when people are full of flattery towards us, it's always worth at least asking the question, uh, is there some motive behind all of this? Hidden agenda, yeah. Solomon had plenty to show off, that's for sure. But is his story in Two Chronicles one that uh, is a complete success story? Well, yes and no, I think, is the answer to that, because the picture we get in Two Chronicles of him is really one of unmitigated success. And, you know, the summary of his reign really is, is a very positive one. But what he did do was that through many of the things that are not there in the text, because of this desire to show a very positive picture of David and his descendants and the line of David still coming down to that day when it was written, is that he sowed many of the seeds of the kingdom's destruction. Things like taxes on people to pay for his great projects, things like compulsory labour, all of these produced seething discontent, particularly on the tribes of the northern part of the kingdom, which actually carried most of the burden of this. So really it was skewed quite badly Mm. against them. And so we find in chapter 10 that actually the lasting legacy of his reign really wasn't a success story because when his son Rehoboam comes to the throne, the 10 northern tribes rebel against Solomon's rule because they refuse to live under these burdens anymore and because Rehoboam, Solomon's son, refuses to hear their appeal to have some of these burdens lifted from them. And he foolishly says, no, you know, if you think my dad was tough on you, you ain't seen nothing yet. And so the northern tribes break away from Solomon, leaving just those couple of tribes in the south for Solomon's descendants, for Rehoboam and his future descendants to rule. But those northern tribes, having broken away, while we discover a lot about them in 1 and 2 Kings, we'll discover absolutely nothing about them in 2 Chronicles. Why? Because it doesn't further the author's purpose, who's trying to track that God made a promise to David. And despite everything, God kept that promise to those descendants. What does the author of 2 Chronicles reveal about Rehoboam? Solomon's son, what insights to his life are given? Well, besides his stupidity in how he dealt with the North, one of the things that we find about Rehoboam was perhaps he was rather more show than substance. We get this story in 2 Chronicles chapter 12, where there's a time when Egypt actually attacks Judah. Now, if you just think of the geography for a moment, where Israel is located, even think of modern Israel today, what is to the south and southwest of Egypt? In ancient times, what was to the north of it? Syria, and go on and up and then drop down by the rivers Tigris and Euphrates, the great empires of the east, Assyria and Babylon. So 
Judah had always been that sort of piggy in the middle, kicked around between these two great empires of Assyria and Babylon on the one side and Egypt on the other. And it often found itself sort of under the sway and under the control. And Rehoboam was nowhere near the sort of man that his father Solomon had been. And so we find in chapter 12 of 2 Chronicles that uh, King Shishak of Egypt, Pharaoh Shishak, comes up to Jerusalem and actually attacks it with a, a pretty formidable force and he conquers many of the fortified towns and his purpose really is not to take over the land. He, he just wants to keep Judah in its place. And now here's a great opportunity. The great Solomon has gone. Rehoboam is nowhere near that sort of man. So Egypt takes this opportunity to sort of attack quickly, keep it in its place. And because Rehoboam doesn't really trust God at this point, he finds himself coming under the domination of Egypt and Egypt takes uh, what we would call a tribute from verse nine onwards in chapter 12. We read that Shishak of Egypt came up and attacked Jerusalem. He ransacked the treasuries of the Lord's temple. Oh, goodness, that must have been painful, mustn't it? And the royal palace. He stole everything, including all the gold shields Solomon had made. So they must have been something very special to be worthy of a a note like that. Mm, gold shields. Very precious, very expensive. So Shishak takes as his tribute these gold shields, some of the treasures in the temple and in the palace, and it's his way of saying, I'll take all this as tribute. Now behave yourself, boy. But it's interesting what then follows, because we go on to read that King Rehoboam later replaced the gold shields with bronze shields as substitutes. Now, that's fascinating. What is he doing there? I think he's definitely trying to keep up appearances because, of course, from a distance, if the shields are on display, perhaps portrayed around the palace or something, from a distance when the sun is shining and glinting on them, who is to tell the difference between gold or bronze? You'd really have to get pretty close up to see the difference between the two. And bronze was far less valuable, but, but would look pretty much the same from a distance as they glinted in the sun. So I think Rehoboam was the sort of man uh, who would like to keep up appearances. There used to be a, a BBC sitcom many years ago called Keeping Up Appearances, where the lady of the house uh, really wanted to appear to be something that she wasn't. And Rehoboam was very much like that. You know, frankly, he'd been embarrassed. He, he had been humiliated by this attack because the Egyptians would never have dared do that from his father. And the north has broken away. Egypt has attacked from the south. He now looks like a weak king. So he, he tries to keep up appearances. And I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? People still try to do the same today so often to keep up appearances. They perhaps try to cover up the truth of a situation, that they don't have as much money as their friends think they do or that they shop in shops that their friends do and they don't or that their marriage is in some difficulties and they've lost their job or whatever it might be. 
or that they've fallen into some sin and are trying to cover appearances and they try to carry on sort of with bronze shields, trying to make it look as though nothing's changed, nothing to see here, move along now, please. But you know what? God cannot bless us when we walk in that way. The only thing God can bless is honesty and integrity. And when we've got it wrong, confession. And the Bible shows us again and again that when we own up, when we own up to our weaknesses, our failings, our sins, the situations are in, that's when God can break in. But Rehoboam was a man who didn't want to face up to reality, was ashamed of what he and the nation had become after his father and so he tries desperately to keep up appearances in, frankly, this pretty pathetic way. And when people do the same thing today, frankly, it is just as pathetic, but most importantly of all, really quite unnecessary. Because when we bring our situations to God, that's when he can break in and change things. So this was probably symptomatic of the kind of person Rehoboam had become. And as we've heard in previous conversations, actually was a factor in the demise of Judah as a kingdom. Yes, exactly. Um, we've seen the nation splits in two. We've seen the story of the North when we looked at one and two kings, but you know, for the ongoing story in the South, for this nation of Judah, while Chronicles will note for us some of the really good kings, because its purpose is to show us that that God always has his, his person that he uses. So, you know, we will see some good kings like Jehoshaphat, who's well known for his praise march in overcoming an enemy. Hezekiah, who made a stand against idolatry and sought God at a time of national crisis when Jerusalem was attacked by Assyria. Josiah, just eight years old when he became king, but there's a phrase that he says, he began to seek the God of his forefather, David. There's that link with David again. You know, although he became king when he was very young, he began to seek God when he was 16. Four years later, he systematically removes idolatry uh, from the land, and it's during renovations of the temple that this Book of the Covenant is discovered that leads to wholesale reform and renewal of the spiritual life. But sadly, those sort of kings proved to be the exception rather than the rule, as they should have been. And so Chronicles moves inexorably towards its conclusion that is now, of course, past history, but that it's telling us about as Babylon will come to attack Jerusalem and want to conquer it and, and take over this nation and expand its empire. And so the book of two chronicles actually ends with the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC when it surrounds it, attacks it, destroys it, sets on fire God's temple, breaks down the wall of Jerusalem, takes everything valuable that there is within the temple and within the palace and takes the people of God into exile back to the land of Babylon. And it looks like disaster, doesn't it? Well, especially as you've said in previous conversations that there was a promise from God 
that there would always be a king on the throne after David. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, God's promises are not unconditional. They are true promises. They are real promises, but they do require our response. And the response of these people had been, oh, great, there'll be a king on the throne always. Doesn't matter how we live then, does it? Because we've got the promise. That is never the purpose of God's promise. God's promises are an indication of what is on his heart, what he wants to do. But he invites us still today to become participants with him and co-workers with him in seeing those promises fulfilled. So how can I put it that the promises are pledges and indications of what God wants to do, but they're not magic. They're not magic formula that we can just say, oh, God said this, therefore it doesn't matter what I do. It matters very much. And this story shows us that despite that promise that God made, because Judah and its kings did not respond faithfully to God, and live according to his word, apart from those few exceptions, then the story leads inexorably to God not being able to fulfill that promise at this stage because of how they have behaved. And yet, and yet, God is somehow always faithful. So although the story heads towards this sad note, the final words of two chronicles give us a note of hope, because where it actually ends is not with the fall and destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of God's people in 586 BC, but it jumps ahead to the end of that exile and ends with these words, in the first year of King Cyrus, king of Persia, Persia was the next empire that would swallow up Babylon, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. Ah, God does keep his promises. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing. And he quotes that proclamation that everyone is to be allowed to go back to their home in Judah and to rebuild the temple. And any of you who are his people may go there for this task. And may the Lord your God be with you. So the book of two Chronicles is going to end on a note of hope. That hope, of course, that they themselves were now living in. God had kept his promise. His people had come back from exile. And the possibilities now lay open ahead of them. But the lesson, of course, through it all was not to take the promises glibly or as magic but rather as what lay on God's heart and to now rise up and to respond and say, yes, and we will now play our part in seeing those promises come to pass. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation, This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.